maximize your sense of aliveness, gain new perspectives on health, your body, and the meaning of life. You can control your physiology and how you feel in your body in this moment. Your life will never be the same. This is the Vitality Podcast with Andrea Page. Let's talk about addictions. And addictions are something, before I even start, I'll say that have a tremendous taboo in the world of today. If you hear the word alcoholic, or if you hear the word addict, usually it's referring to drugs, be them synthetic or natural drugs. When you talk about things like pharmaceuticals, sometimes people can have certain addictions to pharmaceutical medication as well. Okay, so tonight we are going to be talking about our addiction to food. And this is a pretty big one. I publicly often say that I believe strongly that every human being on the planet today has an eating disorder. It's pretty big. Perhaps even some of you in this room have... Battled is the word I think that people would use in the mainstream, but for some reason that doesn't feel right for me to say battled with some more mainstream eating disorders, be it things like anorexia or bulimia, and understanding that that is a whole struggle in and of itself, and it rests much more in the mind and in the perception than it does in the body. Um, I've been doing a lot of work in psychosomatics lately, seeing how actually the mind and our perception of the world dictates what goes on in the body to a large extent. And psychosomatic medicine is a huge other field of interest. But in terms of eating and eating disorders, addiction is a disorder of sorts. It's of course not this restriction or this binging, purging that we would find in more of the mainstream eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia. But the fact that we're all addicted to food, it's, it's pretty darn clear. I mean, what are we doing? We're feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding and feeding pretty much almost every single hour of the day, nearly every single day of our life. And so that becomes really super clear that there's something going on there. You know, if you were strapped up, to whatever it is that you were addicted to, pumping it in, right, three times a day, every day. I need my next fix, I'm hungry. I can't talk to you, I'm hungry. Oh, I'm getting so hangry, right? I'm hungry, I need my food. I haven't eaten today, oh, poor me. You've heard these stories. (laughs) In fact, probably you've told yourself these stories. Are you guys honest? Can we be honest? I mean, I've told myself those stories and I'm a fasting expert, so (laughs) like, come on, yeah? What I often introduce to people is the understanding and the paradigm that really we are meant to be living life in its entirety. And because life itself is dualistic, I'll give you a short intro to spirituality 101. There is dualism and there's non-dualism, right? Or wholeness or union or oneness. Often the non-dualism, that's actually what yoga is here at a yoga studio. The word yoga, it's Sanskrit root word, yug, means to yoke, to unite, to come together. It's referring to non-dualistic. Duality, the world of duality, 
is like, my name is Andrea and your name is not. You see that? We're different. We're two different people. There's a difference there where in yoga, I can look in your eyes and see that you are me. That's what we mean when we say namaste. So many of you perhaps haven't had this experiential understanding yet. Please come to my class on Thursday at 3 p.m. Nada Yoga to have that kind of experiential understanding. But just beginning to see things as dualistic, it means that there's a good and a bad. There's a night and a day, a yin and a yang, a black and a white. There's hot and cold. There's back and forth. There's up and down. We have all these opposites. And so the world of duality is where we divide and conquer, if you will. The non-duality is seeing it all as one, all as the same thing. All as different pieces of a mirror that was broken into a thousand shards, reflecting itself back at each other. Was that, was that okay for Spirituality 101? Did you grasp that? Did that go over anyone's head? You can ask a question if you want. But that's the basic. That's duality versus non-duality. So we'll take from that. In this world of duality, which is the world we live in, because we go up to someone and say, hi, my name's Shirley, yeah? which denotes that you are different, mine. Anything that's mine is not yours. Right? Anything that's yours, just having a yours means that you're not me. <laughs> Can you see that? So in this world of non-duality, which we admit to live, there is this opposition or this opposite of thing, night and day, hot and cold, all of that. Well, guess what? With feast comes what would be the opposite? Famine. Exactly. Yeah, fasting. Feast and famine. You see that? They click in like the yin and yang to make the whole. Feast and famine. But what do we have today? Constant feast. Endless feast. Unending feast. No matter where you go in the world nearly, right? that's easily accessible, we'll say, easily accessible places in the world, you'll normally find a convenience store <laughs> within a convenient radius that will supply you with a bunch of often sugar and fat and differing arrangements that you'll be able to consume to feast and feast and feast and feast and feast and feast and feast. And so because of this overabundance of often food-like products that we choose to call food, I'll call them food-like products because anything that's meant to sit on a shelf for six months probably isn't going to go down so well in this human body that understands natural things. And because of this overabundance of food, that's what's given us this massive addiction. Because we've never been without. So we only know what it's like to be with. Can you imagine a little baby whose mother was totally smothering and never left them alone for one moment in their life until they were 10 years old? And then at the age of 10, this being that's been with its mother its entire life, day in, day out, all of a sudden the mother leaves, how do you think that kid's going to feel? Right? That 10-year-old's probably crying like a baby because it's had the mother non 
stop. And then all of a sudden, the mother's ripped from the child. And the child cries, ah! even though it's already 10 and it can survive for sure without its mom. But just because it's had it every day, it's had her every day, there's this overwhelming almost addiction. When we have constantly something that we don't need constantly, that's when it becomes an addiction. Like TV. <laughs> Who watches TV? We're at a yoga studio. No one watches TV, right? <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? That's, that's how I'm defining addiction, just so that we can get our parameters clear for the rest of this conversation. I'm very sure that there are other way more astute definitions of addiction than the one I've just put forth. But that's what we'll roll with from here on out. All right. So when we talk about this idea of the wholeness of feast and famine, and we come to understand that we only know being with our mother, we only know feast, that we have no idea about famine, we can start to at least say, okay, well, maybe I don't know what it's like to really exist as a human on this earth. And I would agree. And you should be yelling at me in your head saying, wait, did you just tell me I have no idea what it's like to be a human on this earth? Because <laughs> that's what I said. What a horrible thing to say. But what I mean by that is you have no idea how powerful you are. You have no idea how much dormant energy is lying inside of you ready to be tapped into. And the reason for that is because you've constantly fueled from this external source of energy that we call calories. And so when you're constantly getting your energy from outside, you're overriding or ignoring or to a certain extent pushing down the vital life force energy that's alive inside of you. In yoga, we call it prana. In Chinese medicine, it's called chi. In Japanese medicine, it's called ki. In Hawaii, the indigenous people there call it mana. All over the world, there's names for this original life force energy that is all of our birthright when we're born as human beings or as animal beings here on the earth. It's part of life on earth. It is life on earth. It's life force in its purest form itself. And this is something that can actually fuel us at a deep state. But we don't know what it's like to be fueled off of that when we're constantly fueling ourselves off of food. And so the whole idea of needing, yeah, especially needing to eat, is something tremendously, hugely misconstrued in the modern world. And I'll talk a little bit about fasting now. Because many of you probably don't have any experience. You want to raise your hand if you have experienced three days or more fasting. All right, cool. One person out of this whole room. That's pretty right. <laughs> so we could say maybe a juice fast would be fair. Yeah, more than three days. All right, cool. Two people out of this whole room. <laughs> you see? That, that number is pretty much in alignment with the statements I've been making so far, that we just don't have a deep understanding about the other side of life. It's like constant daytime and no nighttime. 
there's no time to recharge and rest and rejuvenate. Same thing if we're constantly feasting and never experiencing the fast or the famine. Yeah. And when we look into something like this to just add a little more back to what I'm saying, we can look to any major religion or culture throughout human history and woven into it is this understanding of fasting. Many different traditional holidays, be it Ramadan, be it Yom Kippur, right? be it Lent. Right? Jesus didn't just not eat chocolate for 40 days. Jesus fasted. <laughs> you see? Our modern interpretation of the whole idea of famine or fasting is quite skewed. It's not just going out without chocolate. <laughs> it's like it cracks me up when you actually think about it. All right, anyway, sorry. So uh, when we look at these modern cultures or even ancient cultures, the practice of fasting was built into them because it's such an integral part of experience on earth, whether you're an animal or a human, which is a kind of animal. All right. So essentially, what happens when we go into any kind of fast is that it takes a period of roughly 72 hours, that's like three days, for the body to switch fuel sources, to shift from digestion and the digestive system absorbing and processing to metabolize calories and use them as fuel for energy source, usually breaking them down into simple sugars that are able to be used to fuel you. And it shifts over instead to sending the energy outward rather than causing lots of stress on the body through the process of digestion, which can take up to 70% of all available blood flow. It sends the blood, which carries life force oxygen, healing energy, out to the cells to heal and to cleanse, to rejuvenate and renew. And in that process, sometimes we're tired, but really, often we feel a tremendous sense of lightness. And by day seven of a fast, or if I'm on a water fast, on day 17 of a water fast, I could feel like running a marathon. Yeah. Because I've switched over into being tapped into life force energy itself, pure prana. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty tremendous when you have that easy of an access to this current of energy flowing throughout the entire body. All of a sudden, you've stopped deadening it by requiring it to go to digestion, and you've allowed it to just proliferate and become alive. And that proliferation of prana, that's a good chapter of a book, proliferation of prana, I'll remember that. That's something that's to be noted, to be talked about, because we can run off of that. I just finished this past week, the detox retreat week. It happens every month here at the Yoga Barn. And on one of the feedback forms, someone wrote, it's day seven, and I feel way more energetic than I did coming in on day one. And this guy was a bodybuilder. Not a bodybuilder, he was a bodyguard. Right, so he's like fitness and health and all, that's his life. Right, feeling really fit, doing fitness tests, being up to par. He's seven days without eating. Somehow he feels better than he did on day one. More energetic, more potent, more capable. That's a lot to say. And often what holds us back is our addiction to food and our doubt 
that life could be any other way. And I don't know, I can't speak firsthand because I've never been an addict or an alcoholic or anything like that. But I would imagine that they would say something like I can't imagine that any other way would work. There's a certain sense of hopelessness there. You experience that? Like someone who's just throwing back alcohol endlessly, like there's nothing else I can do. Or someone who's addicted to heroin, there is no other way that I could survive as a human being without my next hit. Can you imagine? Well, that's what a lot of people say to me when they come to start a fasting program. On day six, they say, I didn't think I could do it. I didn't believe I could make it this far. Can you see that? So how many days after the beginning of the struggle? Like the first three days or something? Yeah, the first three days of fasting are, are often where you find the most ups and downs. And there's a whole correlation with detoxification of what's happening in the body. But yeah, that's to, be, that's to be talked about maybe in a different lecture. You can check out my fasting. I have a do-it-yourself fasting lecture where I'll talk way more about that. In general, though, what I'm trying to get at is the understanding of how we conceptualize our need for food. This overwhelming attachment. If I don't get it, then I need to eat or else. Please don't talk to me. I haven't eaten. I just need to eat something. Yeah? That sugar hit. So from a mental level, we haven't even gotten into the physical or physiological. I'm just starting on the mental level. We can clearly see this over-reliance on food. I call fasting often people's superpower. It's your hidden superpower that you haven't, you haven't uncovered yet. And it's really just waiting to be tapped into. Because it is a superpower. Once you've gone a certain period of time without eating, that means that you've proven to yourself that you can do it. And so in the mind, you can believe that you can do that again and again and again in the future. So that you don't really ever need anything from outside of you to stimulate. And I'm not saying that food's overrated or that we shouldn't eat. Don't misinterpret me, please. Sometimes we do need food, although most of us aren't really eating food. We're eating food-like products. That's to be noted, for sure. Many people are eating way, way more, and way, way more times per day than is needed. And that whole three square meals a day is something that was invented in the 1950s in the United States with money from American agricultural associations. There's no thought, rhyme, or reason to it other than to sell you more food-like products. You see that? So anyway, this whole idea of needing or lacking anything, when we talk about, let's say, nutrition, which nutritional science I find to be quite a fallacy. I think I have a whole podcast on that that you can listen to as well. But this very, in fact, no, I have a video that I just posted on the Facebook page about a month ago from Peru. The title is, Nutritional Science is Bullshit. So you can look that up and you can hear everything I have to say about that. But uh, anyway, this idea of nutrition, of needing something from food. Well, first of all, most people don't even chew well enough for it to be digested. Second of all, the food's probably picked way too early or it's genetically modified or it's somehow sprayed with some pesticide or chemical that your body can't even recognize it anyway. Sometimes it's overly cooked or prepared in a way that the body can't even absorb. So the assumption <laughs> that we actually get nutrition from our food is it's a pretty big assumption. 
But at one point in time, we probably did, hopefully for mother's breast milk. We usually got lots of nutrition from that. And from that point forward, maybe through baby food, hopefully through lots of leafy green vegetables, we were able to build up a nutritional basis within the cells. And that's nutrients along with calories, if anyone has some fat storage that they've been saving up for the winter. Anyone? Yeah, on this bum right here? We know that we have calories as well as nutrients that can last us for quite a long time. And so it's not like we need to eat three times a day to make sure to refill and refill and refill. Our body has reserves. So that whole idea of lacking something or needing something, it often has to do with an imbalance inside of us rather than an imbalance in what we're taking in outside of us. So that's something to think about for sure. From here, I want to start to go into the physiology of it and, and begin to understand the idea that uh, we are programmed in our reptile brain to seek out and search for calories in their most concentrated form. Because guess what? 100, 200, 300, definitely 1,000, if not a million years ago, there was no Pizza Hut or Kentucky Fried Chicken or 7-Eleven convenience store. We found our food in a wild environment, and thus that food was naturally growing food. Natural food, a la fruits and vegetables, whole food, often in its original form, is quite balanced between fiber, water, nutrients, and calories. And so the calories are spread out through a big volume of food. When you roll up to Pizza Hut today, in one little slice of pizza, ba-bang, you can get a thousand calories in one go. Right? That would take me a whole lot of effort in the natural world to get a thousand calories. You see that? Calories simply don't exist in such a concentrated form in the natural world. But since they're so readily available at your next KFC, right, we find that it's just, it's, it's lunacy. It's like you're hitting the jackpot several times per day. Well, guess what that jackpot is on a chemical level in your brain? It's a straight dopamine shot. It's the same thing that happens when you snort cocaine. And the reason for that is that when you have a thousand calories and that one slice of pizza, your body is celebrating because it knows it's going to survive the next day. It doesn't know the difference between now or a thousand years ago when that was a big thing to celebrate because you didn't have cheese back then. Do you see? And so because of this over concentration of calories, we're having chemical releases internally that are the same chemical releases that people have when they take drugs. No wonder it's an addiction. Does that make sense? I can't tell you how many people come in my office and say, Andrea, I'll do anything you say. I just won't give up cheese. <laughs> it's like, okay, great. It's so super clear, this, this addiction. I mean, you can even try it. Close your eyes. Everyone close your eyes. 
Now think of your favorite food, your very favorite, favorite, favorite food, the thing you would never want to go without. Now a little leprechaun comes in and tells you you can never eat it again. How do you feel? Some of you are like, why the hell a leprechaun? <laughs> hmm? Anyone feel anything? A little pissed off? A little sense of like, ugh! Or like, no! Or like, ugh! Desperation? Desperation, that's a good one. Addiction, desperation. Right? People who are in withdrawal are often in desperation and they'll do very silly things, nonsensical things in order to get the drug. You see that? Have you ever been in that place? So the reason that I'm spending so much time talking about the mental and the chemical addiction to food is first to convince you of my point that we are all addicted to food, but second, to shed some light on it so that maybe for the coming week, I can challenge you, for the coming month or for the coming rest of your lifetime, you can spend a little more time reflecting on this as it's happening. Wow, I'm witnessing that desperation come up inside of me. All I can do is think about cheese for the past hour and a half. What's going on? You see that dopamine response? Yeah, the more we talk about it and put it in light, the more we have the ability to reflect upon it and come back to think about it often. All right? So, when we look at this, essentially, we're having a whole lot of calories today and a very small nutrient intake. Lots of calories, very few nutrients. So that's not only going to release dopamine inside the brain, that's also going to leave us in a great nutritional state of lack. Because when we eat those food-like products that aren't actually food, it results in a feeling of like, but I want more, and I want more, and I want more. Who's ever felt that before? I want more. I'm just not satisfied. I just, I want more. Give me some more. Often, we're simply undernourished. And even though we're getting so many calories, it has very little nourishment in it. Often that's reflected by the color of the food. So next time you eat, maybe try to make your plate look like a rainbow, where green is half of the color. <laughs> yeah? All right. I'll also say that um, there's an essence of how we are supposed to be eating our food that we're simply disobeying. There are laws in the physiology of digestion in the organ of the stomach that we ignore. So who was here last week? We had the food combining lecture. Okay, so you can listen to it if you weren't here on episode one of my podcast series. It's the food combining lecture. You'll learn about how digestion in the stomach happens. Essentially, most meals we eat are an incorrect combination, and that incorrect combination results in alcohol, the byproduct of indigestion, being released into the bloodstream. As alcohol is released in the bloodstream, you get a little bit intoxicated to a certain extent. Well, we know that alcohol can be addictive, so I'm, I'm not making an argument, I'm rather asking a question could this miscombination of food which releases alcohol in the bloodstream also add to this addiction or this addictiveness of food? It's an interesting question, interesting thought. 
anyone who's listening to this in, in the food industry or in the health world can definitely put back a question to me, another intelligent question, so we can continue the conversation for sure. But I'm just here to put forth these questions. There's a whole other chemical part of this addiction to food which we have to talk about, and that is the food industry itself. The food science world, where food is being made in laboratory. Again, not food, but food-like products. And they're being doctored and changed so that the flavors are enhanced, or sometimes so that the flavors are interpreted by our brain rather than our tongue. Chemical enhancers that are actually tasted by the brain in chemical releases rather than in the taste buds on the tongue. Classic example of this, monosodium glutamate. Different glutamates, which can be naturally occurring, but when isolated or synthesized in a laboratory, right, like MSG, that's what I'm referring to, monosodium glutamate. Who's heard of MSG? It made big, big news in the early 2000s on 60 Minutes. Right, lots of Chinese restaurants went under because of that. <laughs> and we find that MSG is one of the biggest flavor enhancers used worldwide today, especially in Asia. Right? Wei Jing in, in Chinese, Hashimoto here. That's a Japanese brand name that came all over Asia. Hashimoto, and it's here in Indonesia. It's used in almost every household. I used to live in Bangladesh, and they, they called it Tasty Salt. <laughs> That's a clever name, isn't it? Tasty Salt. God forbid the Tasty Salt. It's been known to cause many defects in the human body. Right? It's often linked to things like migraines, certain remnants or toxic symptoms, symptoms of toxicity, issues in the body, sleeplessness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we see that definitely any kind of concentration of salt can't be good for the body. It backs up the bloodstream and it throws off our physiology. A few podcasts ago, I released a podcast about salt and oil and their effect upon our body, so you can listen to that one as well. In general, this whole paradigm of flavor-enhancing chemicals where we taste with our brain rather than our tongue yields a host of new problems for this over-addiction to food. Because, oh my goodness, now you're telling me that stuff's going to taste so good and I'm not even tasting it with my tongue. It's going to taste so good, I'm going to start to be addicted to it chemically in the brain. And in fact, what MSG does is it leaves you with this endless unfulfillment where you always want more, and then you want more, and then you want more, and then you're finished and your stomach's like 95% full and you want more. And you just want more until you're overeating, overfull, overstuffed, and you don't know what to do because you still want more. It bypasses all of the natural signaling processes in the stomach, in the mouth, in the brain, and it creates this artificial paradigm that really there's just no answer to. So when we get into any kind of packaged food, MSG can be hidden, even as something like natural flavorings. There's like a hundred different names that MSG is legally allowed to be labeled as in packaged food. So I encourage you, you can go home and Google that. Check it out and see, educate yourself. In fact, stop eating things in a package. 
that have ingredients. That's a whole lot easier, easier way to avoid MSG. Often though in sauces, if you're eating out at restaurants, there are ways to be more conscious and more aware. Because yeah, if you're eating at restaurants, often in the sauces, there'll be MSG. So starting to wake up to this and ask the questions is a huge part of starting to break the addiction. So I have two more points, and then we'll go into the good news. I'm honing in the bad news. <laughs> so next up, uh, it, it's a point that we already talked about a little bit. It's this, this understanding that we are so malnourished. And it's not even malnourished by the fact that people are eating, literally in this world of today, eating fast food nonstop. Right. To box cereals, to even fortified products, you know, fortified things, fortified cereals or fortified milks, that's a big heap of BS. As if your body is going to understand this unnatural injection of synthetic vitamins in a non-vitamin containing food, quote unquote, source. As if. Yeah. We make all these assumptions in the nutrition world, in the food science world, when no studies are done on the actual effect on the human body. That's remarkable. I'll go on. So since we are so super malnourished, we will always have this feeling of lack. And the greatest malnourishment of all, everyone, is the lack of minerals. The lack of minerals. First of all, because we're dehydrated. And that's something I'll talk about a little bit more in a second. But second of all, because we're meant to be drinking natural mineral spring water in its natural state, in its fully mineralized state. Today, we're drinking tap water, right? Totally purified and demineralized. Even bottled water, like what we have here in Indonesia, is put through a process called reverse osmosis, whereby the minerals, too, are taken out of the water in the osmotizing. And so because of that, not only are we drinking water that's absorbing minerals from us in order to make itself whole as it passes through, but we're also not really eating as much of the number one mineralized food as we need to be. What did I say that half of your rainbow-colored plate should be? Green. Yes. Green, she said very fast. Green. If you look outside, that's the color we're surrounded by. That's a big hint as to what we're supposed to be consuming. Leafy green vegetables, specifically baby young, tender, sweet leafy green vegetables, are so densely high in minerals. And if we are deficient on a mineral level, we will always feel a sense of lack. So, I come to our last point, which is dehydration. Most of all hunger is actually thirst. Understanding that, understanding that as a human species, we are totally dehydrated is a tremendous thing to understand. That next time you think you're hungry, drink a tremendous glass of water, take a breath or five, drink another one, and then check in with that feeling. See if it's a little bit wetted, if you've wetted your palate. <laughs> yeah? All right? So we're meant to be drinking three liters of water per day. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the amount of water that the human body uses and loses simply by waking up in the morning. That's water that's meant to be drunk on an empty stomach. So try that out. Don't believe me, please, with anything I say, verify me. And see if that changes your understanding of hunger because hunger is something that comes 40 or 50 or more days into a water fast. 
when you're having nothing but water. Hunger is something that very few humans on this planet have actually experienced today. People starving in less developed countries are often eating like a piece of bread per day. That's malnourishment, more than actual hunger. It might be thirst, even. Massive dehydration. So just some things to think about, about that phrase, I'm hungry. Next time you say it, listen to yourself. Ask what it really is. So when we start to go into the other part of this lecture, which is talking a little bit about practices, or things we can do in our life to become more conscious and maybe break this addiction to food. Is anyone interested in that? Who wants to break their addiction? Yeah, well, some hands shot up there. Yeah? Here are some practices. So if you're taking notes, you can write these down. The first practice I would definitely say is fasting. Ah! <laughs> that was an easy sell. We can't know night until we know day. We can't know back until we know front. We can't know boy until we know girl. You see that? We need to know the other side of life to begin to understand the wholeness of the paradigm of existence here on Earth. And so please, try out fasting. Make it a regular practice in your life. This is something that is our birthright. It taps us into this superhuman power and this original life force energy so that we won't have this over-reliance on food. The first way to remove us from this over-reliance is to make us realize that there's another way that we can live without, yeah? And that there's another source of fuel that we can feed off of that doesn't even have calories. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Vitality Podcast. Please click over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review to spread this work with the world. You have a part in transforming humanity's health. Keep enjoying this free resource and make sure to give back by sharing, subscribing, and checking out all of Andrea's work at liveforvitality.com, where you can find links to Instagram and other social media. Andrea also gives astrology readings, holds online fasting retreats, and teaches detox courses and advanced yoga teacher trainings. So come to liveforvitality.com and let Andrea transform your life now.